Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the network, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be going back in time to Charles II's uh, monarchy in England around the 1660s after the English Civil War um, and examine one very interesting aspect of his monarchy um, where he and his government really had this idea that they could somehow make his re-established monarchy more, I don't know, more better, more stronger, more wonderful, um, and that they could really have this incredible impact on the people living in land governed um, by the English crown, um, and that these things all kind of come together in this lovely book published last year by the NYU Press, so 2021, titled An Empire Transformed, Remolding Bodies and Landscapes in the Restoration Atlantic. And I'm very pleased today to have the author of this book, Dr. Kate Mullery, with us to explain, discuss and explore how these really ambitious projects of environmental engineering um, that she describes in her book weren't just about the environment or the fens or anything like that. They actually had this much bigger, more connected um, goal in this particular political period that not only had impacts then, but are still things that we look around and see today. Um, so, Dr. Kate Mulry, thank you so much for being with us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and and thanks for that kind intro. It's such an honor to have this opportunity to talk with you about my book, and perhaps to reach a new audience. So, I'm excited. Wonderful. Um, could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and your academic background a bit, and then explaining why you decided to write this book? Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> So uh, I'm an associate professor of history at California State University, Bakersfield. Uh, I teach classes on Atlantic world history, uh, early American history, the history of science and medicine, the British Empire, environmental history. Um, And as for my academic background, I did an undergraduate degree in history at Princeton University and later completed my PhD at New York University. Uh, In terms of what I research and write, uh, I consider myself to be a historian of science, medicine, and the environment in the early modern Atlantic world. I'm really very interested in what health meant to people in the past and what they thought about their bodies uh, and the relationship of their bodies to a place or the environment. And because the body was such an important metaphor for understanding lots of other aspects of, of life in this period, including early modern political culture, through metaphors like the body politic. It's also been a way for me to think a lot about how people understood or imagined the role of the state. Okay, uh, now for the harder part of this question. Why did I want to write this book? Um, I really think I could answer this in so many different ways, uh, but probably The most straightforward answer is that I became very interested in the rhetoric used by officials to celebrate Charles II's restoration to the throne in 1660. It seemed like such an interesting moment after civil war and then a period without a king under Oliver Cromwell. The English monarchy is restored in 1660, but there's there's a lot of anxiety, right, after upheavals, after violence experimenting with new ideas about government. Uh, There's all this anxiety about how Charles II would rebuild. And then there were the added complications over how to deal with far-flung colonies that had had really grown and and were continuing to grow in size and significance in this period. 
So there are all of these questions about how to centralize, how to consolidate authority after the king's long exile. There are also older unresolved problems as well as these new ones to deal with. And, and so lots of things had been shaken up. Charles II couldn't just sit back and say his authority was untouchable and divinely bestowed. His father had been beheaded. He needed to come up with other, maybe more convincing ways to stabilize and, and consolidate authority. And really, two major strands of the rhetoric used by his supporters really caught my eye um, and, and, and really shaped the writing of this book. Uh, and that's first, there are writers who celebrated the king as a kind of physician. They referred to, the, referred to him as this kind of uh, healer, basically, who could both heal the metaphorical wounds of that body politic. Uh, his return was going to restore the head to this, this headless body politic. Um, but it was also about improving the actual physical health of individual subjects' bodies. They celebrated, for instance, how he was bringing in medicines and drugs from around the empire to, to heal his subjects. Um, and I think this other really fascinating thing he does is he, he brings back the practice of laying his hands on subjects who are suffering from something called uh, scrofula. At least I, I hope I'm saying it correctly. It's also known as uh, the king's evil. Um, according to this one historian, Stephen Brogan, uh, the king might have offered his divine healing touch to as many as, I think he estimates something like 96,000 sufferers. And it became this really effective political strategy that he was a kind of healer, healer of his subjects. Um, and the second strand I was really following with great interest was that royalists compared the king to a good gardener uh, or steward of the nations uh, and the empire's lands, that he kind of proved his ruling chops by being able to transform nature. Um, so is this, and they use this like really interesting phrase, uh, as, as, a, as a prince of planters, I think that's, that's, that's the name for him, this prince of planters, <laughs> that's one of, uh, you know, one of the really evocative phrases. He was able to establish the basis of his authority by, by promising that he would be able to skillfully manage or cultivate nature, um, everything from draining swamps to planting gardens and orchards to make sure his subjects had enough to eat and so on and so on. Anyway, there's there's so much material. So I, I had to edit myself and I and so I tried I really tried to focus on moments where there's there's two strands came together. I looked I looked for places where improvers or officials claimed they were transforming bodily health by transforming the environment. So it was a way for me to kind of highlight where there's where there's two themes came together. Highlight a kind of political ecological thinking uh, that the human and the natural were sort of absolutely entangled um, and that both could be remade and remade and managed and controlled through these landscape improvement projects that I was that I was tracking. Um, and I know this answer has already been too long, but no, I that, that makes sense. <laughs> that explains the, the strands and also kind of why the book looks at the particular moments that it does. And I, I think we're probably going to get to kind of little pieces of those moments um, in the course of the interview. So it's, it's interesting to know sort of what the strands are. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit more, because in some ways it sounds really odd to modern ears that by doing these big agricultural or land-based changes that somehow changes the humans. In some senses, that sounds really strange. But then on the other hand, we, we do have public health. We know that like it does impact human development, brain development, if, for example, you live in really heavily polluted, especially early modern, you know, industrial revolution, nasty pollution. So on the one hand, it sounds odd, but then it's like, oh, but there maybe there's something there. So can you sort of tell us a little bit more about like 
what did they think at this time the link was between things happening in a physical space and things happening in the body? Absolutely. Um, If you don't mind, maybe I'll actually start with a a kind of anecdote uh, and then I'll move into that question. So one of the inspirations for the book, um, and I don't write about this and maybe I should have uh, in my forward or introduction, but it it came from a period of time I spent working for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Uh, while I was there, and, and I know this sounds really uh, far afield, I promise I'm going to answer your question. Uh, so while I was working there, the mayor initiated a plan to plant a million trees. I think that was the goal, a million trees, and, and to expand available parkland around the city and more as a way to make the city healthier and more resilient to a changing climate. And I I remember hearing arguments about how, for instance, the shade from tree cover would save people money on energy bills during hot New York summers and that it would have all sorts of public health and economic benefits. And I've often reflected that those conversations about the kind of causal relationships between a changing urban environment and improved public health really, really stuck with me. And when I later returned to graduate school and and started research for my dissertation, which then became this book, I guess I I saw, I don't know, um, like echoes of these conversations in the primary sources I was examining. There were these voices articulating causal connections between landscape improvement projects and the the benefits to residents' health and, and behavior. And obviously, I know there's a world of difference between planting a million city trees in the present and the much darker claims and dreams of control I was tracking in the past. But I guess I just wanted to tell this story as a way to illuminate, um, you know, ways that experiences from my own life shape the kinds of questions I ask about the past. And also to say that, you know, some of these ideas about kind of dreaming about social control through environmental manipulation are are still very much um, present and um, alive, if that makes sense. Yeah, there are resonances between them, even if they're not exactly the same. <laughs> and then I guess I, I would like to be much more specific about answering your question, because I do think um, it's really critical and 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 does does not make sense to to modern ears. This idea of how deeply connected bodies are uh, to the environment, at least in the way people thought about it in the past. Um, okay, so I will just introduce very briefly the concept of humoral theory. So we're talking about a time and a place when people thought about their bodies and health in very different terms. According to humoral theory, every individual was born with a particular balance uh, of what are called the four humors, um, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile. And, And the particular levels of these humors in a body shaped everything from an individual's health to their appearance, their their body type, their behavior, even things like their temperament and their their, their character, right? So it's, it was something so much so much deeper than just thinking about kind of uh, health or illness alone. It was it was something so much more comprehensive. Uh, so an abundance of phlegm might lead to particular kinds of illness, but it it also might like change your personality. And so even though people were born with a particular balance of humors daily life continued to shape and balance, continued to sort of shape and, and, and balance those humors or unbalance those humors in all kinds of ways. So a, a person's diet, for instance, really mattered because foods also had their own humoral qualities, which could agree with or they could clash with the particular humors of um, a body. There were also environmental influences. So the climate or quality of the air, for instance, also affected health. So the environment had this like really immense power to shape appearance, to shape health and behaviors. And and really that's the heart of this book, right? That 
there's a belief that people's health and behavior, their, their very identities, were deeply linked and really connected to place. Um, and so by transforming those places, you can transform not only the, the public health of those places, but, but something even much deeper, potentially, their, their, their identities, their, who they are. Uh, anyway, so sorry, yes. <laughs> I want to explore this with the kind of first instance of it um, that you mentioned in the book, because it was really, um, where else would you start except with the Great Fire of London, obviously. Um, and what I had probably been taught, but certainly had forgotten, is that before the Great Fire of London, the year before, there was also um, an outbreak of plague. So there's this massive plague that sweeps through London, and then everything burns down. Um, and there's some obvious stuff around plague, not just this outbreak, but generally around kind of the, the bad air and the burning of various things, which, again, thinking about modern science and health, like we know is actually a thing, but their reasoning maybe wasn't accurate. But the idea that air could be bad for you or transmit diseases, we know is real. Um, and so it kind of reading the plague bit, reading the fire of London, I was like, okay, all right, this idea of re- molding bodies based on the land okay I, you know thinking about reconstruction there's definitely going to be something in there about like what can we how can we get rid of the bad air okay I'm, I'm i'm with you with this and then to read there were kind of two things that particularly struck me that i'd love for you to sort of tell us a bit about is that yes there was an emphasis on kind of pollution and bad air but there was also this really strong emphasis on like the architecture on on the way that buildings new buildings would also have this impact. So it wasn't just the like earth and the air idea of landscape. It was the man-made elements as well. That was really striking. And that also it was striking that there were so many plans made. You detail all of these plans and then it turns out very few of them actually come into to come to reality. But that these plans not only go beyond kind of thinking about earth as like nature into the idea of architecture and the man-made, but also really have this strong idea of like, I guess, class manipulation, moral manipulation, there's some sort of like, if we build, rebuild in a certain way, we're going to like force the people to act in a different way ish. So I was wondering if you could kind of tell us about why in particular, the words that kept jumping out at me from the um, amazing source material you talk about were words like uniformity, uprightness. Why was that's so important. And how did the architecture kind of, how did that play into this idea of environmental influence? I, I love that question. Um, so yes, plague hit London, 1665, 1660, the fire, the city was destroyed by fire. Um, and, and Londoners thought that these disasters had been sent by God. At least that was one potential explanation. So for instance, there are a range um, of writers who are blaming blaming God. Um, and there are, are other authors who sometimes in the same text, sometimes, you know, different text, there are a range of writers who blame the poor for carrying disease because they had been engaging in immoral activities that left them apparently vulnerable to infection. So pestilence was in their minds really deeply connected to morality or th the lack of it in this case. Um, after the fire, there was also a lot of hand-wringing um, and accusations that, that God had sent the, the fire to punish the nation for its sins. One of the really interesting sources I came across during my research um, was a journal kept by someone named Mary Rich. She was the Countess of Warwick and a, and a deeply religious individual. And after the fire, she engaged in some pretty intense soul searching, asking herself like which of her sins had contributed to this disaster. She prays in her garden. She weeps. She decides to schedule all of these fast days. And I was really fascinated about how keenly, how personally she took the news of um, fire. And so there are all these people who understood plague and fire through this really deeply religious lens, right? They were looking for their own, like how their own sins had contributed to these disasters. So some people took it upon themselves, like Mary Rich, to sort of think about what she had done. But there are all of these other people who, who blamed particular residents of the city for, for bringing these disasters into London. 
And so when it came to rebuilding the fire or rebuilding the city after the fire, um, there are all these writers who wanted to change the physical landscape of the city because they believed they could change the way people behaved in the city for those reasons. So in their plans to rebuild, you have all of these writers making associations between, um, on the one hand, things like crime, sin, disorder, sickness, smell, smoke, darkness. Um, And on the other hand, uh, light, reason, health, good public order. So there's um, someone named John Evelyn who wrote a treatise about London in which he claimed that the kind of ramshackle streets were, prior to the fire, these ramshackle streets were deformed and dark. And as a result, the residents' minds were sort of similarly dark and deformed. Uh, And after the fire, he and many others saw a kind of opportunity. Evelyn proposed rebuilding plans that would include wide, spacious streets with good airflow, light could shine in. uh, and, And he claimed that this would be kind of conducive to public order, good behavior, and good health, kind of all simultaneously. And so building uniform buildings, wide avenues, long and straight alleys would lead to well-behaved, or at least they thought, well-behaved and, and, and rational residents. And then, of course, there's, I think, other purposes to these wide, straight streets. Um, it was a way to make residents legible to rulers, like literally improving visibility uh the new architecture of the city that they were that they were scheming to build uh would would shine a light on residents doing unlawful or immoral things and so there are people like evelyn who suggested moving the smelliest and most smoke producing businesses outside of the city so that coal smoke would no longer harm the health of residents Um, and he wanted straight streets for instance so that people who were walking around the city, they'd always be in view of certain buildings like St. Paul's Cathedral. So basically he wanted residents who would always be reminded that God was watching. So yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain, but this kind of like very all encompassing idea of, of, of what like the, the, the built environment around people could, could do to their health and behavior. Well, and could also do for the government, right? You kind of touched on this, that it would give the government more power. And in fact, in this part of the book, you talk about, quote, the languages of sovereignty and how this rebuilding kind of offered opportunities um, and also some some challenges, because traditionally, um, I'm sure many people will be familiar with the idea of the city of London being kind of, in some ways, a political entity in its own right. You know, the monarchy didn't get to make whatever decision it wanted about London. Um, so how do you know, tell us a bit more about this kind of government power sovereignty angle of this rebuilding. Great. I, I thank you for pushing me to answer this further. Um, so I, I should start by reiterating what you just said, because I think um, it's important that many of the plans for rebuilding London didn't actually happen. But this is a theme that kind of runs through my book where I'm really interested, even if it didn't happen, to kind of investigate the the language, the aspirations, the goals embedded in these documents, even if the plans didn't actually come to fruition. And so there are lots of writers reflecting on rebuilding London. They left lots of records behind about what kinds of things they were thinking. They... They drew maps and plans. They write. They write poetry. Uh, that was one of the more fascinating things I came across. All the all the poetry about rebuilding London. Um, there are new laws and proclamation proclamations, and and each of these sources um, allows us to better understand the changing ideals of what a city should look like and how people should behave in those in those in those places. So all of these sources have been helping me think about how people at the time, you know, thought a city should look like and what kinds of activities should or sh- definitely should not take place in the streets, in the markets, in the coffee houses, in the taverns. And and one of the outcomes of assigning uh, blame to the so-called diseased poor 
was that it often became um, a precursor or basically an excuse for enacting laws to exert all kinds of physical control as well as social control in the city. So by defining poor bodies as diseased or a threat to the body politic, you can craft new laws to control them. And they did develop a sort of range of laws to do this. Um, I, I do want to talk briefly about this. I hope it's not too much of a tangent, but I was thinking this as I was speaking moments ago about diseased poor. So we have uh, potentially sick bodies, but we also have so-called monstrous bodies that are associated with immorality and 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 politi- moments of political turmoil. So there's this kind of longstanding pamphlet culture of, of linking sin, or I mean, especially during the Civil War, uh, political turmoil or war with, with monstrous births, for instance. And so... Uh, uh, the reverse was supposed to be true. Healthy bodies were supposed to be virtuous and well-behaved. And so, you know, sick or monstrous bodies were the ones that um, were, were dangerous or, or were signals or symbols of something dangerous. And so there was a lot of, there's longstanding practice, I guess is what I'm trying to say, of, of, of scrutinizing individual bodies to draw conclusions about the health of the state. And, and so it really mattered particularly in fraught or anxious times during war, plague, major fire, the health of subject bodies were basically like a clue. They were, they were a clue t- t- uh, and had political sig- significance right, that, that taught rulers, um, you know, if, if things were going well or if things were going poorly, poorly. So if you think sickness is related to social disruption or, or related to disordered souls, states believe they have a lot of leeway to try to control those sick or disruptive bodies. Um, and I guess it's not, it's not a municipal problem. It's some sort of wider societal threat. Yeah. Yes. And I, and I think one of the things I, I also just wanted to make sure I, I, I got out there because it, I, I think it does matter to thinking about these languages of sovereignty I was referring to um, is that even if some of the plans didn't take place in London, um, many of the discussions about how to rebuild London and, and prevent future incidents of plague or fire, these conversations shaped plans for constructing cities around the English empire. So, you know, these ideas about uh, wider streets and, and better airflow uh, that can act as a kind of fire prevention, th- these plans show up in texts about how to build Philadelphia or Charleston or Kingston. Um, so I, there are histor- historians who, who suggest that some of these plans for redesigning London inspire some of the plans for redesigning cities around the Atlantic world. Uh, so one of one of the plans was made by someone named Richard Newcourt, um, and the historian Thomas Wilson thinks that Ashley Cooper and and John Locke, their designs for Carolina, might have been inspired by those plans. And then you have someone like William Penn from Pennsylvania who promises settlers a green country town that won't be burnt and will always be wholesome by planning right. a city where houses are sort of surrounded by green. And so there. There are ways in which these kinds of conversations in London have, they, they ripple out into the Atlantic and really shape kind of urban planning schemes. And, and I, I, I guess I thought that sort of also mattered when we're thinking well, about. How- <laughs> in fact, you demonstrate it in the book because um, you start us off in London, but then you do take us to these other places. Um, and I'd love to kind of continue those threads by briefly discussing um, some of the other kind of, I don't quite want to call them case studies because that makes them feel too separate because it really is quite clear that they're all part of the same conversation. Um, so moving kind of the, the next closest place to London um, is the Fens, right? And today we don't have the Fens, um, really. And this is essentially why. Um, but if anyone's ever read, for example, Philip Pullman, the Fens were still a thing kind of in his imaginary Oxford. Um but the fens were massive. They were essentially huge swamps covering certainly more territory than I had really realized. Um, and so the idea, as you've been talking about, was, okay, swampy, dark, the people are short, they therefore must also be 
bad in their thinking or immoral or something because they're weird and they live in swampy land. Um, so therefore, we need to drain the swamps. Um, we need to drain the fens. And so that kind of tracks, that, that follows the conversation. But you detail as well that in addition to just kind of being another place where we see these ideas play out, the fens and the challenge of draining them, there were political aspects to it. There were economic aspects to it. There were social aspects to it, as well as kind of this like health immorality thing we're already talking about. So could you maybe kind of tell us a little bit about not necessarily so much why they wanted to drain the fens, but why it was so hard to do it from the perspective of the Restoration Monarchy? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm very glad we're going to talk about the fens. Um Sometimes when I tell people what my book is about, and I I share with them that that two chapters cover um, swamp and fen drainage projects, I I get a lot of strange looks. <laughs> but I really learned to love uh, reading about fens and bogs and swamps and thinking about them as as kind of in, the way in which the restoration government thought about them is really kind of similar places filled with similar kinds of people. Um, anyway. Uh, Yes, back to fens. So, yeah, the fens were very worrying to the Restoration monarchy. I mean, I, I, I know you've already just sort of introduced this, but just to give a sense of scale, um, fen, the fenlands in this time stretched over something like 700,000 acres. So this was a really, really large area. Um, the ecology of the fens was really varied, so it wasn't just one type of environment, you know, like well, near the coast. It might have been more like salt marshes. Um, and then you have other areas that are more like peat fens or moors. You also have kind of rivers and waterways and catchment areas. So it is a really d- diverse ecology, but it's it's a very, it stretches over a really large um, area. And, and in the 17th century, these watery landscapes and the people living there really kind of confounded people who didn't live there. Um, and, and, I, and I will gesture to the fact that in these chapters, I am sort of talking about a couple of different wetland spaces. But in this period, wetlands, swamps, bogs, and other kind of like watery uh, places were almost considered these kind of liminal, um, liminal spaces where people who were kind of living beyond the reach of the state might reside. They're considered to be uncivilized wastelands. Um, calling these places wastes was really common. Um, and so they're talked about as places that required intervention, and in this case, drainage, in order to promote cultivation and um, stable settlement. <laughs> so basically, if it wasn't Straight rows of cultivated agriculture, many non-Fen residents saw it as wastelands. And and that actually, I mean, this is totally an aside, but bear with me. Um, this idea of sort of the straight rows of agriculture, I hope that makes you think of the kind of uniform streets we were just talking about. It's mm-hmm. so the, the built environments mm-hmm. that that were supposed to be, um, you know, civilized and straight and enlightened. Right. This this is not just city streets. It's also the rows of agriculture and the and the and the rows of orchards. Right. So it's a kind of all encompassing ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's no urban rural divide here. The idea is <laughs> the same. Right. Um, so they, they are pretty inaccessible places um, and they posed some pretty threatening kind of ideological problems to the restoration government. So uh, when the Bedford Level Company reformed after the restoration, they promised the crown they'd, they'd drain a particular part of the, um, the fens, this kind of 350-ish thousand acres called the Great Level, and they garnered a lot of support. Um, and that's because these spaces felt really threatening in a couple of different ways. And, and you outlined some of them, right? So politically, the Fens were frightening to the crown in part because there was this long history of rebelliousness in the region. Oliver Cromwell was a native of the region. He had defended Fenlanders' rights in the, in the late 1630s against the crown uh, and earlier drainage efforts. 
And residents later rioted and tore down these drainage works. So there's a kind of history of thinking about people who live in these kinds of um, spaces as being kind of riotous and uncontrollable, unruly. Um, and, and they're also worrying places to the state because the fens were pretty inaccessible to outsiders, like f physically. So it's not just the culture of the people living there, but they're, they're physically inaccessible during seasonal high waters in particular. And so it's, it's hard to extend political oversight over people living there. Then economically, they're worrying um, because the people who wanted to drain the fens claim they were, you know, lazy pastoralists, that fen life and fen economy um, weren't kind of like modern enough, basically, to the people who were writing uh, about these spaces. Um, you know, they didn't understand how the people in the fen sort of lived their lives season to season uh, in ways that just were really different, right? Not, not worse, just different. And so they didn't recognize what they were doing is... Um, <laughs> good enough, basically. So in the more low-lying areas where there was little natural drainage, um, where it was flooded year-round, for instance, you know, they, they had a lot of practices. They made salt. They relied on fishing and fouling. They lived in all of these ways that were, that were, that fit within the ecology um, of, of those parts of the fens. And then there were people who lived in what was called the halflands, and they lived in a place um, where there was maybe seasonal flooding, right? So it's not flooded all year, but just partially flooded. And so residents in these kinds of grounds relied on things like turf cutting or hay production um, or part-time grazing. So for drainage improvers like the Bedford Level Corporation, they were able to, they were able to basically convince, the crown to support their projects by saying that they would make sure that the fens were drained so that agricultural products might be grown year round. Um, that it wouldn't be just these seasonal halflands, that there wouldn't be, um, you know, these low lying areas that were sort of always inundated, but that they, that agriculture could be year round. And they, of course, you usually only mentioned how residents could benefit from drainage and they rarely mentioned how since they were the ones venturing money on the scheme they were going to give themselves a lot of land in return basically mm -hmm. enclosing the fen commons and turning it into private property which is why the residents of the fens were so angry about these proposals because it was basically going to destroy their way of life and then you know they also <sighs> I guess the, the third kind of thread that, that really mattered to me, so there are these kind of claims about changing, ma making the fens more accessible politically. There are claims about how economically they're going to trans them, transform them from kind of lazy pastoralists to um, cultivated agricultural workers. And then the third kind of claim people like the Bedford Corporation members make is um, they say that they're going to heal the landscape and heal the people living there by making claims that, that both are like deeply unhealthy. And so there are all these really awful claims about the people who live in the fens that circulated in this period. There were claims that residents had things like webbed feet or that they were pale and sickly, that they were hunched over, um, that they were sick because of the stinking vapors or miasmas that hovered over the fens. So, you know, one writer claimed that the residents were kind of, um, they were, they were dull. I think he used the word dull and, and subject to infirmity. So he like kind of uh, was critical of their intellect. Another, I remember, wrote that they had a kind of uh, turfy scent. And so he's critical of the way they smell. Another one says they have souls made of sedge. So basically, like their souls are like the grasses that, that grow in wetlands, that they have um, hearts that are are like animal hides, so kind of comparing them to animals. And so all of this was a way of, of trying to say that they're different, that they lacked awareness, that they were unhealthy, uh, and that the corporation members, therefore, should be given the right to make decisions for them because they were sort of othered in this sort of extreme way. Um, 
And I guess I just want to say, finally, because I seem to answer every question at length. Um, but the last point I want to make is that projectors were also talking about the land itself as unhealthy, right? That, that somehow wetlands were unnatural and they're wet because of human laziness and failure. Uh, the people were sick, the land was sick. And so curing both was good for the nation. At least, you know, this, these are the, these are the, this claims, is the, the rhetoric. Yeah, <laughs> right? this is the theory. And so in, in some ways, um, I think it was quite interesting that you talk about kind of these problems, quote, problems of the fens, and that there's a lot of this othering going on, almost in a sense of as if the fens were somehow foreign territory. And, and that had this spark of kind of political problems, like, well, but it's part of England, so it better be part of England. Otherwise, like, what are you doing as king? Um, and this kind of has a lot of similarities with sort of the colonial rhetoric. And so as we sort of move over the Atlantic, kind of, we're going to kind of stop in the middle in a minute. Um, but as we start to think about the colonial aspect, you talk about in the book how these improvement projects in England were somehow, quote, considered to be compatible with or even facilitating colonization. So the compatible with, we've kind of already mentioned the idea that they're all part of this big conversation. But how were these improvement projects facilitating colonization? Uh, th thank you. Um, and now is the moment where you're like stretching your brain back to think about your book um, and what you wrote. So I, I think what I was thinking when I wrote that um, uh, so yes, this is a period of time when the king and his officials weren't only concerned about imposing order on places and people who were unruly or unmanageable within, within England, but they're also looking around at the colonies and, and planning to enact some similar projects of, you know, so-called improvement um, and, and often voicing similar complaints about unhealthy and unruly people in order to gain support for their projects. And so I think what I was trying to say is is that there's there's often like a shared language, there's often a shared personnel, and there's a way in which um, you know colonial officials often looked to what was happening uh, domestically and and bringing some of those projects or concerns as and, and carried them with them as they you know went to the colonies. Mm. So I think we can track continuities between how people talked about improvements in England and, and talked about improvement in the colonies. And I, and I think by broadening our view, we can really see how we can't understand these improvement projects or improvement culture in isolation. We can't assume they're only happening in England because improver culture was really an Atlantic-wide phenomenon and, and, and often s served basically the same goals. Um, I will just say that I, <laughs> while I absolutely uh, hope I still agree with what I said in my book, I would also say that I think there was often tension between domestic improver culture and colonization. Uh, so on the one hand, there's sort of facilitation by the kind of echoing language, by 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 practicing things in one place and carrying them to another, sometimes even using the same um improvers. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, there's also this kind of tension. Uh, like, for instance, I, I remember one of the Bedford Corporation members who uh, invested in draining Fenlands. This is Samuel Fortry. He wrote a book celebrating drainage as maybe even an alternative to colonization. Uh, he wrote that by draining the Fens, improvers might reveal really fertile land like in their backyard and so he asks why would anyone risk their lives and fortunes pursuing uncertain colonial projects when there was a kind of new new world closer to home and so he says drainers are going to reveal immense acreage of arable land through drainage which will be easier to get to than florida i think that's like the particular you know <laughs> parallel he draws and then there are other projectors who are making sort of similar claims that maybe like by processing sugar out of apples, they could, and I, and I remember this quote because I thought it was so evocative, that they could turn England into Barbados, end quote. And, and, and so some English writers started to, to worry that the colonies might act, actually be acting as a kind of brain drain or, or a drain on the domestic labor pool, maybe drawing motivated, hardworking, 
young people away from home. And so they wondered how to entice some people to stay and, and even cautioned that maybe there needed to be more criticism or, or, or people needed to be more critical about the role of the colonies and, and what value they really brought to the table and not just assume that more colonies is always are always better. Well, and I wanted to kind of uh, jump on that because one of the, in addition to kind of, oh no, we're losing all of our best people or labor, etc. There was another worry about English people going abroad as part of colonial projects that I had certainly never thought of. Um, that goes back to this idea that you were talking to us about at the beginning, that the environment really shapes who one is, one's identity and the food that you eat and the air that you breathe and all these things. And so if you kind of think in that mindset, it does seem quite obvious as soon as you explained it in the book, um, but I had never thought of it before, which is that there was actually a lot of anxiety, it seems, around, well, if all of these good, lovely, hardworking English people get on a ship across the Atlantic and then end up somewhere like Barbados or Florida that doesn't have any of the same food as England, doesn't have any of the same plants, the air is therefore obviously different, will they somehow stop being English? Which of course is really different to how we think of identity and nationality today. Um, But it sounds like, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more, like this sounds like a really big anxiety. Yes. Yes. And thanks for that question. I, um, this absolutely goes back to what we were talking about before this idea of humoral theory and, and, and that it's not just your health, but, but, but your identity, right? It's, it's just such an all-encompassing idea that your body is sort of porous and open to the environment that it's shaped daily, minute by minute even, by the things you're eating, by the air you're breathing. Uh, and so, yeah, there's incredible anxiety about getting on a ship and going to a, a foreign environment because y- you don't know what the effects will be. And people were really anxious about what those effects would be. New airs and new foods might totally transform a body. If you relocate to a new place in the empire, are you are you still English? Um, and so what happens to a colonist if they move to Jamaica and, and breathe this new air and eat this new food? And so for this um, section of the book, I, I was really trying to be in conversation with, with some scholars like Karen Kupperman or Rebecca Earle, uh, Anya Zilberstein. They've all pointed out that that colonizing was a kind of deeply anxious thing, um, that colonizers were, were, were very worried about what would happen to their bodies in new climates uh, when consuming new foods. Would their bodies change? How much? Would their characters change? How much? Uh, and what could they do to mitigate against these changes um, by cultivating foods from home or by transforming the landscape to make it basically better suited to their their bodies, right? So by draining wetlands or clearing forests, for instance, there was this claim constantly in, in the English sources that they could kind of regulate the environment or change it by by clearing the the woodlands, the forest of the place, um, that they might even, you know, make it warmer. Uh, and so this idea of kind of manipulating the environment was absolutely present in, in all of this literature about how to make it sort of safer for English bodies to travel. Um, and then, of course, there are all of these different anxieties uh, almost in the reverse. Um, there are ways in which the colonies or, you know, foreign places basically are traveling to England um, you might eat things like coffee or potatoes or spices, and you might be fearful of what those new foods might do. So uh, there's also this kind of other angle, right, that early modern men and women were thrilled, but often really terrified about what would happen if they ate foods that were not sort of um, planted and, and, and cultivated in English soil. Um, I, I think it's it just fascinated me and i kn- i know i included it in one of my chapters but there is all of this wonderful kind of pamphlet uh po- poetry and medical treatise writing about the arrival of coffee in england um some writers warned that coffee could put people under um and again it was just such an evocative quote uh, that it could put it under a put put drinkers under a turkish spell they claimed that drinkers might lose anything from their Christian beliefs um, 
to like their very English identities by drinking it. And so, you know, some people might have celebrated its arrival and others were fearful. And so it's not just people who are traveling to the colonies. It's often the, the kind of colonial commodities that are traveling to England that are causing a lot of anxiety about about bodies and their porousness. Fascinating. Thank you for explaining um, that. I, I really, it sounds bizarre. And then you think about it and you're like, okay, all right. I, I could maybe see where they're coming from. Um, so we're, you do have two case studies in the book, um, not the fens, that, that continues the conversation, but you do have two kind of distinct case studies. And we're not really going to get into a lot of detail about them. So readers who are interested, you can go read the whole book to get the whole thing. Um, but I am curious kind of a little bit in terms of behind the scenes, because the two case studies you look at moving over to the Atlantic world are Jamaica and New York. Um, and at this point, they're both relatively new English colonies, um, which is maybe a period of empire we don't think about as often. So why did you choose to focus on Jamaica and New York as your two colonial case studies? Um, yeah, gr- great question. I think people often forget that um, the size of the English empire more or less doubled in this period. So it, it's a pretty overwhelming m- moment. And and uh, English officials are trying to think through how to assert authority and manage this, this growing empire. And then adding to the confusion, you have all of these different kinds of colonies, right? You have, you have charter colonies, proprietary colonies, royal colonies that are all governed differently. And so I, I chose to focus on Jamaica and New York in part because they were colonies of conquest, um, which is something new for the English. Like the crown didn't uh, um, pay for <laughs> these kinds of projects of conquest until Cromwell and Jamaica and the Western design. So it's it's a pretty new way to gain a colony for the English. Um, and so at first, the king had a different relationship with those places. Um, and importantly, and I think this is really why I chose these, these, these two places to highlight is they also have non-English residents. And so the English took Jamaica from the Spanish in 1655, New York from the Dutch, uh, well, six, I'll say 1664, but that's just the first time it's a little more complicated, goes back and forth a little bit. But they're both places that officials imagined might require uh, like special intervention and so I thought these colonies would help me better understand how English restoration officials planned to establish authority over places where there were many non-English residents. You have all these all of these people in Jamaica and um, in London asking whether or not the king planned to keep Jamaica. Was he going to give it back to the Spanish? What should they do about all of the soldiers left on the island? What kind of colony was it going to be? Was it a colony that was going to be dedicated to, you know, settlement or not? Um, and then the, the chapter that features colonial New York asks some of the same things. The settlement on the western bank of the Delaware River resulted in a lot of confusion. Technically, the Duke of York's grant only extended to the river's um, eastern banks. And and the, the part of New York that I'm discussing in the chapter is the area around a place called Newcastle, which is on the western side. And in fact, that's where many of the Dutch, Swedish, Finnish, and English residents I discussed lived. They were on the western side. They were residents of the former colonies of New Netherland, New Sweden, New Amstel. And and of course, when I say New York, which I should maybe also clarify, I'm talking about the Duke of York's original grant. And that um, is is much more than what we sort of think of as New York today. Um, it extended all the way from the St. Lawrence River down to the Delaware Bay, including, you know, what became New York and New Jersey, but it also included parts of Maine, of Martha's Vineyard, of Nantucket. So it was it was a very large area, basically. And then within a decade, the king granted William Penn the proprietary colony of Pennsylvania. And, and that's in part because Penn's father had helped Cromwell secure Jamaica from Cromwell's Western design. So there's also this sort of weird and interesting connection between hmm. 
Pennsylvania and Jamaica. But so the residents of the place that I'm talking about in this chapter are in this kind of confusing place where there are all of these these overlapping claims and it's and it's really confusing and it's uncertain and they're constantly sort of writing like how do we know that we have this land and and it it really it it confuses and and concerns them and and that's what really interested me that you get it, you're getting all of these writings from residents of Jamaica and from residents of New York sort of like begging for clarity um okay so thank you for introducing those case studies, um, almost as a teaser, I think, because we're not really going to go into them. Um, instead, my last few questions are continuing this idea of kind of the behind the scenes of excavating sort of your thinking, as it were, in the book. Um, and one of them is tangentially about Jamaica, but only kind of. Listeners, you'll see what I mean in a second. Um, you talk about in Jamaica, there was this idea of, uh, well, what are we going to do with this colony? Do we even want it? Do we want to give it back? And so as almost in a sort of parallel, as with after the Great Fire of London, there were all these ideas put together and all these plans drafted and whatever. Um, and as you did in the initial chapter, you sort of detail all of these incredibly elaborate and fascinating plans. And then we find out that actually they don't happen. And so for half a second, I was sort of like, huh, okay. And then helpfully in the book, you you talk about why it's still useful to know what was dreamed up, but then never happened. And I think that that makes a really interesting point, both about kind of the things we've already been talking about, but also in general, in terms of like history methodology as historians working on a lot of different topics. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about kind of the craziest plans, but maybe focus a bit more on kind of why, what can we learn from plans that never went anywhere? I I, I really appreciate that question. I mean, it's it's something that I've long been interested in. I think I think failure can be a really important historical lens and can provide a lot of insight. But I will I will get back to that in a moment. I will briefly sketch out what it is we're talking about and then go into your more interesting methodological question. Um, okay, so this this proposal that I'm talking about. Uh, in this chapter came from a series of manuscripts I encountered in the British Library that outlined this kind of really fascinating, at least one of the gardens in this in this chapter, uh, outlined a plan to cultivate two gardens, one in England, the other in Jamaica, and both gardens were supposed to be, at least in part, comprised of East Indian plants that would be transported and transplanted to these two gardens. And so there are multiple drafts of this proposal, um, and the authors proposed sending gardeners on East India Company ships to collect medicines and spices and colorful, aromatic plants. Um, most especially, they wanted pepper so they could kind of grow this highly desirable spice much closer to home and away from a part of the world where the Dutch sphere of influence really loomed large. Um, and so ships carrying these specimens were supposed to basically like stop off in St. Helena and the other ships would then take most of the plants to Jamaica. The rest would head to England. And so the the plans really um, don't make a lot of sense when you start to read them carefully. <laughs> the plan needed lots of money, cooperation, good timing. They needed skilled gardeners who could care for tender plants on on really long sea voyages and and like the list goes on about like what would have made this really hard to implement these plans. Lots of things had to go right. And the plans didn't play out as the planners intended. I will say this is not entirely a history of failure because some elements of the plan did happen. Um, but, but I think to go really kind of into your question a little more directly, I think one of the reasons I wanted to highlight a set of plans in the archive that never got put into action is that these documents still reveal the aspirations, the, the dreams, the goals, the plans of various imperial officials at the time. It, it, 
It tells us what kind of empire they wanted to build if they had the means and opportunity, basically. And I was really inspired by the work of um, Anne-Laura Stoller here. And, and she encourages scholars to be really attentive to what she calls state fantasies in, in the archive. That, that looking at these plans can still actually teach us a lot about what people at the time may have been thinking, even if they didn't necessarily have the, the power and the money um, the wherewithal to actually sort of put them into place. And so I was really interested in kind of excavating um, like the kinds of things people were were thinking about, even if even if they didn't get put into place. I think it was fascinating um, and a good reminder that, like, as you said, the, the fantasies can be quite revealing. Um, so thank you for not only showing us what some of those things are in the archive, but also kind of talking about why, what we can learn from them. Um, now, I almost, in some ways, don't want to ask you this, but I'm also incredibly curious. Um, it's one of my kind of traditional closing questions I ask nearly everyone. Um, and you've already given us so many possible answers. <laughs> um, but I do always want to know, especially for people who do a lot of archival work, um, if there's anything you came across in the research or writing of the book that really jumped out at you. Now, again, you've given us the Countess of Warwick, which I'm really pleased you mentioned um, because it, it, for listeners who aren't fully clear, the Countess of Warwick, who was so upset about the plague and the fire that she examined her own sins, she didn't live in London. She was not directly affected by like her own house burning down, right? She had read about these things and then went, clearly it is my sins, um, which just was fascinating. And the fact that the state like encouraged people in the whole country to think of their own sins causing this thing far away. Anyway, I'm getting off track. My point is, um, you already have given us many of these in these in this interview and many in the book, um, turning England into Barbados, etc. But is there anything in addition, maybe one more you could leave us with that jumped out at you? Yeah. Um, yeah wow. This is such a hard one because, <laughs> yeah, there are so many moments <laughs> of surprise. And I would say one of the real pleasures of doing research in the archive is how many times I'm surprised. Mm. Um, but maybe what I'll do is share one of my, um, one of my like aha moments mm -hmm. uh, during the research. You know, those moments when you're researching and something just clicks and you gain some kind of clarity about what uh -huh. it is you're trying to do or say. Um, so I was particularly intrigued by a letter to the governor of West New Jersey um, saying that like it had basically been to the governor's advantage that that most of the Swedish and the Dutch and the Finnish residents of the region were actually on the other side of the river. And so the letter writer is basically like that way you didn't have to fight with them. You didn't have to displace or remove them and you didn't have to. And this is what like really jumped out at me at the time that in his words, he said, you didn't have to new mold any of them. And, mm. and this idea of, of like remolding really fascinated me. It seemed to suggest something really hands-on. And I, I was so fascinated by the idea that kind of controlling non-English inhabitants of a place might might require something referred to as new molding and, and the range of things that that might mean, right? And and so to suggest that people were sort of malleable and, and transformable, and then I extended this to think about how places are malleable and transformable. And, and this is, of course, how I got to the part of my book title, um, this kind of idea of remolding. It came from this letter from a governor of West New Jersey and, and this idea that like, you have options. <laughs> you can fight someone, you can remove them, or you can new mold them. And I, I, I've, so much of this book is about this kind of idea of, of transformation. And, and that's, I guess, one of those moments where I sat yeah. there and just thought, like, here it is. I, I, I have this, this way of thinking about the source material in a, in a way that feels fresh. And then, of course, you then have a title for your book, which is extra <laughs> yeah. convenient. Cool. Um, well, Speaking of the title, um, I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I personally come up with towards the end of the work on a project. Um, and this project is over. The book is published. Um, so what are you working on now? Uh, yes. Um, okay. So uh, I think in many ways, my project 
really builds on the questions I was pursuing while writing the book, right? That I guess is probably the standard answer of uh, many people who who speak with you on this podcast. Um, but there were some things that I read that I didn't have enough time to think about. And um, that's what I'm taking the opportunity to do right now is, you know, one of the kind of conversations I saw playing out in the archives uh, was a was about how women's fertility was affected by the new airs and the climates and the foods and the colonies. Um, and I, I was so intrigued by how in this moment, right after almost like a half century of, of talking about the colonies as an ideal place to send waste people, there are suddenly concerns about population size and how that equates to political and economic strength. And so there are all of these people writing in the 17th century, um, officials who are sort of expressing pronatalist sentiment and all of these men kind of asking questions about women's reproductive bodies and and looking for ways to get women to, um, and I, I, I will use their phrasing, basically like, quote unquote, breed faster to assist in the state's interest, like more labor, more soldiers, more colonists. And, and there's this conversation happening around domestic populations, but there are also these conversations happening around the Atlantic at roughly the same time. Uh, and in Jamaica, for instance, there are planters publishing extremely exploitative narratives about enslaved women's reproductive lives. And so this is a convoluted explanation of what I'm trying to do, but I, I think one of the threads I'm trying to follow at the moment is, is tracking a range of, of really exploitative ideas developed um, by English medical writers in the period. And like right now I'm focusing on Jamaica um, in the late 17th century. Uh, and it's all these writers um, urging Jamaica's new English proprietors to cultivate cacao because they claim consuming chocolate, which is made from cacao, both boosted women's fertility and enabled endless sort of physical exertion, which is like such a colonizer's fantasy. And so they're ant anticipating cacao would solve the islands population and labor needs. And so, yeah, so right now looking at Jamaica, but I hope to expand it into a much larger project about this kind of like pr the pronatalist sentiment and, and kind of an empire-wide conversation about population size. Well, while you are off exploring the archives, continuing that strand of thought, um, listeners can read your current book that we've spent most of the episode discussing, titled An Empire Transformed, Remolding Bodies and Landscapes in the Restoration Atlantic, published by NYU Press in 2021. Dr. Kate Mulry, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and time and ideas with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've really had a great time.